You're listening to On The Verge, a podcast about solving the security risks of the 21st century, produced by the Council on Strategic Risks. Tune in for expert interviews about some of today's most pressing existential problems, including climate change, global pandemics, bioweapons, and nuclear proliferation. We'll discuss some of the major challenges and outline potential solutions for preventing worst-case scenarios. At the Council on Strategic Risks, we believe that we are on the verge of a better tomorrow. Hey everyone, my name is Natasha Bajma. I'm the director of the Converging Risk Lab at the Council on Strategic Risks. In this episode, CSR CEO Christine Parthmore talks to experts from Japan about their country's response to the global pandemic. As of December 2020, when I'm recording this short intro, the U.S. has had over 17 million confirmed cases and more than 312,000 confirmed deaths. By comparison, Japan has had about 194,000 cases and 2,708 deaths. That's about how many deaths we are currently experiencing on a daily basis in the United States. We recorded this interview this past fall, but we think it's incredibly important to learn any lessons from Japan's response uh, that we can apply moving forward to the United States as we attempt to overcome the pandemic in our country. Um, Just note, it's a little bit longer than our usual episodes, so it lasts about an hour, but I encourage you all to listen to the very end. It is worth every second. Let's go to the interview. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christine Parthamore, Chief Executive Officer of the Council on Strategic Risks. We are a nonpartisan, nonprofit think tank based in Washington, DC, where we focus on systemic risks to security in the 21st century and practical policy solutions for addressing those those threats. Uh, Today, we have with us a few special guests uh, tuning in from Tokyo to discuss lessons from Japan's response to the COVID-19 pandemic Uh, and a little bit about the future of pandemic preparedness and prevention for both all of our countries and and everyone around the world. I'm very grateful for our two distinguished guests who we have with us today. Uh, Ambassador Nobuyasu Abe served as United Nations Undersecretary General for Disarmament Affairs and Commissioner for the Japan Atomic Energy Commission. From his career in diplomacy and public service, he's one of the world's most deeply experienced thought leaders on international security challenges. We're also honored that he's a senior advisor to us at CSR. Dr. Tomoyo Saito is director of the Department of Health Crisis Management at Japan's National Institute of Public Health. He has deep experience in emergency preparedness and response, health surveillance and biosecurity, and has worked for Japan's Ministry of Health, Labor and Welfare, and assisted after the Fukushima nuclear accident, among many other experiences that he brings uh, to the conversation today. Forming the basis of our discussion, uh, the novel coronavirus pandemic and devastation from COVID-19 are continuing around the world as we speak, uh, with the United States here, one of the countries for which it's the least under control. While it's too early for any of our countries to declare success in halting this pandemic, some have controlled it better than others. Uh, Japan's success is remarkable for any country, but in particular, given its large population centers, such as Tokyo, Uh, and high population uh, densities in some spots. As close allies, Japan and the United States have a good tradition of sharing lessons from crisis responses with one another, including many of us here today. In that spirit, I'm very grateful for our guests speaking with me today to help explore some of Japan's COVID-19 responses, what might have contributed, uh, what factors may have contributed to uh, the relatively low death rate that they've experienced uh, to date, and sharing ideas in general about preparedness and hopefully for all of us preventing such devastation from biological threats in the future. So thank you again for joining me. Um, To start with, uh, I understand there are many experts in Japan, uh, including uh, Dr. Saito, uh, who are working to understand what has contributed to the case count and mortality rate from COVID-19 being much lower than in many other countries. Uh, What are some of the uh, variables that you think have contributed to um, to the experience that Japan has had, uh, starting with Dr. Saito. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's my great pleasure to talk with this topic today. 
So I was working for the COVID-19 response task force in the Ministry of Health from February. And I worked for the developing the uh, countermeasures strategies for this COVID-19. And our, one of our success was the early detection and early response uh, for the, uh, in the early phase. So we have, could find the first imported case in the, mid of, in the middle of January. And later we could also find the, uh, the cases who does not have the travel history to Wuhan. It's a very difficult task to detect such cases in a very early phase. And later we uh, experienced our big cruise ship outbreak. It was, we have a, a very good lessons uh, from that outbreak. And also we had, uh, learned a lot from the repatriates from Wuhan. And we recognize that these uh, diseases, the many people are asymptomatic, but very transmissible and sometimes uh, case fatality ratio is very high in the older population. So we could recognize the threat and risk of, disease, of this disease very correctly. And you know, early, in the early phase, many people think that it's similar to common cold, but it was not the case for COVID-19. We recognize it very early in, the, uh, in February. And also we could characterize the mode of transmission by the contact investigation of the about 100, early 100 cases. And we recognize that the 80% the of cases does not transmit others, but uh, other 20% can transmit to many, more than five or 10 and form a cluster. And we, uh, we recognize that the chain of such cluster is the nature of you know, the mode of transmission or the uh, nature of the epidemic of COVID-19. And our strategy is to focus on containing the clusters. And we could also characterize the risk factors to form such a uh, clusters, environmental risk factors to form such a cluster that it's called three Cs, closed and crowded and close contact. It's a, a three high risk factors to form such a cluster. That, that why, that's why we uh, developed the communication strategies to say avoid three Cs. And that is very uh, popular words in the Japanese population these days. And lastly, the citizens responded very well to the government message and they worried well and responded well and they changed their behavior wearing masks and avoid the uh, 3C environment. And that was the, also the uh, success, uh, the factor of success in the early phase of COVID-19 in Japan. Excellent, thank you. And you said that early detection um, was one of the really key factors uh, very early uh, in the outbreak in Japan um, and at the start of the pandemic for the entire world. Uh, were there, uh, was there a fast ramp up of diagnostic testing uh, capability in Japan, or was it more targeted toward these clusters that allowed that earlier detection success? Yeah, uh, we could develop the testing capacity in uh, all the country in the middle of January, but the surge capacity, it was not well developed. So that's why in the early phase, we focused for focused for the uh, on the uh, cases who developed disease and and more than four days or the who have uh, the contact history to the patient and developed the diseases so we do not uh, implement the universal testing universal testing in the early phase because we have a resource limitation that sounds like an important lesson for all of us, and especially countries uh, like ours that are experiencing shortages of tests for mm -hmm. how to sort of make sure that they get where they need to. Thank you very much for, for that insight. Ambassador Abe, would you like to add to this question? Yes. Uh, first of all, let me say this. Uh, Dr. Saito is an expert in this question of uh, epidemic pandemics, and he is in the middle of the government uh, uh, policy making process. 
I'm, I'm, I claim I'm not an expert in this field, but the, the question in, uh, in such a big disaster situation, I experienced this in at the time of Fukushima nuclear accident. All of a sudden, almost everybody becomes a stakeholder. And all of a sudden, everybody becomes a, some kind of expert and they claim to be expert and they start speaking out. And this, in a way, causes great confusion. But I think in a democratic society, you have to give chance to everybody to speak out. And also, you have to listen to the experts, the experts. And in the democratic, democratic process, it is important that everybody is persuaded, convinced by the advices of the ex, uh, experts. And so I think this is a necessary process. And let me say uh, this about this. Uh, the reason why the death rate is so low in Japan in comparison to the US and other countries. I think Japan so far has done very, rather well. And I would also have to say Taiwan and South Korea did even better than Japan. And uh, uh, this is the situation. And Dr. Uh, Tanaka uh, came up with the expression factor X. Some unknown factor in Japan may have contributed to the low rate of deaths from this pandemic. And there are a number of factors. Uh, one raised the possibility that the BCG vaccination may have helped or Japanese uh, way of behaving wearing masks, don't uh, shake hands, don't embrace each other, may have helped many factors. But uh, we still don't know the answer. I think the answer may be perhaps the combination of all those factors that may have, because in every possible cause, there's also some cases to prove against. So scientifically, you cannot say only one factor as a contributing factor. That's my quick answer to this question. Thank you. Yes, that's very, very valuable uh, advice, uh, certainly, that, that there's no single factor. Exactly. Uh, the more contributing factors we can understand and how they combine together, I think will be a big part of the, the science in the future for understanding uh, better what happened. Thank you for those insights. Um, and second, though, uh, so that Saito-san, you're in Tokyo as well, correct? Great, so Tokyo is probably my favorite city in the world. Uh, I love it very much. And I was wondering if, uh, since you're both in Tokyo, if you could just share just some personal impressions on how life has been and how the public's reacting and um, all of our communities around the world are responding very differently, both in terms of measures like lockdowns, but also just how people feel uh, and how people are faring in this. And, just wondering, in uh, one of the biggest cities in the world, uh, if you could share some insights on, on how life is and how it's changed uh, mm -hmm. and how people are feeling about it there. So I think the, the life has changed drastically, especially in Tokyo. And as you see, the, you know, the uh, transmission efficiency or in other technical words, the reproduction number is 30% uh, or 40% less than the first wave even if we are, the cases are increasing. So I think that the, the people in Tokyo are taking appropriate uh, preventing measures in the normal life. And in the public transport or office, everyone is wearing masks everywhere, even in the, even in the outside under the um, very strong sunshine, people are wearing, still wearing a mask. Uh, but, you know, it's a, a little bit risky for the heat shock, but people are uh, eager to wear masks everywhere. And people keep distancing, physical distancing in the public transport or the shopping centers or other, you know, spaces, public spaces. And we have uh, less opportunities for the partying and the, we have less mass gathering events such as concerts. And, you know, in the Japanese culture, we drink a lot at the night bar. 
<laughs> after the office hours, but we really see such opportunities, unfortunately. And, and people are refraining from travels, travels. So, and one of the drastic changes is that we do not see inbound travels. As you know, the recent uh, five or 10 years, we promoted the inbound traveling the tra for uh, coming, uh, promoting uh, visitors to Japan, but we have no one there in the sightseeing places. So that's a big, very big difference. And people are getting used to this normal life, but we still have, but we, st we see some fatigue for COVID-19 and people are boring this life and everyone is tired. <laughs> we understand that, certainly. Thank you. Uh, Abe-san? Yes, I have a couple of impressions of, about this uh, uh, soft lockdown in, in Japan, in Tokyo. One thing is uh, Japanese people are very much uh, obedient, rule-abiding people. The government's only issued advisories, no law, no legal order to lock down or to forbid going out. But people take heed the advices of the government. This is a, this may be a cultural difference between Japan and other countries. Uh, but I also got an impression that this is tough on everybody to stay away from friends, to stay home without going out. Because I realize humankind is a congregating uh, tribe. It goes with the pack. So it is difficult for the humankind to stay home and to be separated, to keep distance. So it's mm -hmm. tough. But uh, against this uh, airborne pandemic, uh, you have to do so. One good thing, good outcome in Japan, in Tokyo is because of the situation, people are now greatly depending on internet connection. Japan was somehow lacking behind other countries in making use of internet connections, communications, but the situation has greatly moved Japan forward. And that may be one uh, good outcome of this uh, terrible pandemic. Thank you for those insights on a little bit on life in Tokyo. Um, one of the other issues that we've been dealing with here in the United States, and again, many other countries do, are challenges in the information environment. Uh, so I appreciate your comments on uh, both the need to let people speak their minds and share their views in a democracy and uh, the, the three C's campaign uh, for public communication that has been going on. Uh, so we've touched on these a little bit. Um, I'm wondering, for one, uh, you know, our country has been the victim of deliberate disinformation as well. So we have uh, both other countries and then entities within the United States that are um, advocating for incorrect information through social media and other tools on a regular basis. Has Japan been heavily affected by that or, or less so? So thank you for this question. I think that we have a little bit better than other countries on such deliberate disinformation campaigns on technical issues. Yeah, we see a lot of new sellies worry <laughs> on the uh, on some BCG, the effectiveness of BCG vaccines or many other um, new, um, new series, but um, the, we could, the government were expert committees working for the government headquarter is uh, providing a unified message on technical issues. But we have a lot of argument on the policy or intervention uh, strategies, such as the soft lockdown or hard lockdown or um, uh, something like that. But one of the success of our communication was the, the work at the uh, role of the expert committees, which was established in February. And they are consisting of the uh, experts, subject matter experts from public health, epidemiology, 
infectious disease and the uh, public health law. And they gave advice on the medical aspects for the government. So they published the um, and situation assessment and recommendations to the government. And also they had a press conference to talk about their uh, situation assessment and uh, recommendations directly to the media. And it was broadcasted online. And that was a very good uh, communication uh, on technical issues. And, but on the other hand, the risk communication by the government is literally, you know, um, less powerful. <laughs> and, you know, in the early phase, that crisis communication is more unidirectional and government just say, this, uh, just provides a situational awareness and what to do uh, for preventing the infection. But in this next mid to long-term phase, we have to uh, live with this corona, the COVID-19 risks for a long time. But in, in that case, we need to uh, have a dialogue between the government and citizens and how we work and how we live with coronavirus. But in that process, we have more, we need more efforts on the developing the, our next stage strategies uh, to, uh, you know, uh, for a long time. Much more to be done. Uh. In all of our countries, thank you. Abe-san? Yes, uh, here I need to be a little critical of the Japanese government. I think uh, they have been doing rather well, but uh, since the, this uh, experts advisory group, we don't know what sort of discussions went inside before they come to a certain conclusion. And uh, in that respect, I think it should be made as transparent as possible. And also very important, they should keep the record of discussion, internal discussions, even if they don't, may not be able to disclose, disclose it immediately, but they should be kept on file so that we can review uh, on a later day what happened and what need to be corrected or what need to be improved. That's a very important democratic process. And in terms of this uh, information sharing, there's a big debate going on about uh, authoritarian government countries can do better in their respect than democratic countries. I'm not sure, uh, so sure, because the most successful countries like Taiwan, South Korea, both very vibrant democracies, and they still did very well. In a way, China failed in the initial phase because local officials try to suppress the information, try to block the information. And that could have been done only in the authoritarian country. And so there are some shortcomings, but we have no way to go to authoritarian country. So we have to find a ways how to handle this question in an open, free, democratic society. And that is important. As I said, people need to be persuaded. And for that reason, they need to hear what were the options discussed and what are the merits and demerits and how they came to conclusion. And then people will be persuaded and they will follow advices. That's very, very helpful. I agree completely as well on the, the danger of praising authoritarianism, uh, especially as we see it rising up uh, in many places around the world right now. Uh, and the importance of thinking about, and as Dr. Saito-san has uh, mentioned as well, listening and being in dialogue with people um, and making it a, a discourse with the public. Um, Abhisan, you mentioned also uh, recording the, um, the deliberations that go on for these groups. In the United States, we would generally uh, get public attention to what happened by Congress calling hearings. Uh, on uh, what happened and people who are there would, will get called to testify um, and to share their stories that way. Does that occur with the diet? 
or is that not a process that, that the diet has generally? Well, it's happening, but uh, the legislature is controlled by the majority who elected the prime minister and the government. So uh, usually the legislature doesn't go as critical as they should against the government. So that's the problem. And they're still struggling with each other. Oh, I see. Gotcha. So yeah, the, so the, the written record will be very helpful then <laughs> for the yes. history in that I, case. Can I respond to Mr. Abe's comment? Yeah, thank you very much for the very good critical point. Yeah, as you mentioned that, yeah, we are really sensitive about the transparency and open dialogue in the very early phase from the expert side, but it was usually, it was a little bit difficult. But uh, we are much, much better than the previous pandemic in 2009. And we try to be uh, transparent, uh, try to ho have an opportunity for a transparent science communication. And we have several uh, independent uh, press conference for science community by the, exper the experts in the expert committee. And the, the, as for the uh, record of the advisory board and the expert committee, it's now published on the website about a brief summary. So uh, we are trying to uh, be more transparent than uh, before. <laughs> That's our effort, but we still have some uh, concern on um, the gaps between our knowledge and our awareness and the citizens' knowledge and perceptions. We have to, you know, fill this gap for the uh, next phase. Um, and one one of the experiences we're having in our country is. Um, different messages coming, uh, most of the health responses occurring at the state level. Uh, so we have governors and state and local leaders, and then we have federal officials there and with 50 different states uh, speaking and two territories uh, coming in as well. Um, the public is receiving a lot of different and often conflicting uh, advice and messages on this. So just wondering, is there is there relative unity between the prefecture governments and the federal response in terms of the messages getting to the public, or is is this a tension that you're experiencing in Japan as well? Uh, it's a very good point, and um, you know, um, there is some you know different attitudes in the prefectures and government government in the central government especially in the first declaration, especially on the first declaration of state emergency in April. Some prefectures wanted to, uh, wanted to um, intervene more before the central government state, de state de uh, declared the emergency. But, you know, to uh, respond, uh, you know, to take a unified response in the, all the government. Government, the central government had to, you know, control the, you know, some of the measures, uh, some prefectures wanted to take independently. That was a very, you know, uh, there was a lot of hard discussion on that. Abe-san, did you well, have a response? Uh, People have the impression that uh, local governors are doing better than the national government in this respect. I think I, uh, I tend to agree. The governors are responsible for providing medical services to the people. So they're more concerned about the immediate question of hospitals overflowing, the emergency rooms uh, fill, overfilled, and ECMO, the last resort. And may run short. So they are more uh, worried about such situation. And they tend to give a uh, stronger warning to the people than the central government, who is, more, who is also concerned about the nationwide economic activities. That is also a very serious question. That's a situation, I think. Excellent. So this is a, a common challenge in both of our countries yes. <laughs> that we experience. Uh, again, both being, being democracies uh, with large populations, not terribly surprising. 
Thank you. Um, and then opening up uh, to think about international cooperation a little bit. Um, you know, all of our countries are, are very, very focused on our domestic responses very heavily on this. But if we're thinking about how to uh, prepare for and prevent future pandemics from reaching the scale of devastation uh, that many of our countries are seeing from COVID-19 and that the global economy is experiencing, uh, we're going to have to think about new ways to cooperate as an international community. Uh, and I believe strengthening some of the, the institutions and regimes that currently exist. So I wonder if either of you have any specific thoughts or um, ideas that you've been thinking about on this front, on international cooperation. Um, Ambassador Abe, we'll start with you. Yes, I have a number of ideas about this. One th first thing is to build up a, an early warning system, to give a warning that uh, some unknown pandemic is rising. And that is important. Second of all, you have to build up uh, preparedness, uh, stockpiling necessary medical supplies, hospital facilities, and important personal resources to run the emergency facilities. So that is uh, important, but also you can't have, you can't afford to keep them all the time. So there has, you have to build a kind of a surge capacity to increase the supplies, facilities, medical supplies, facilities, and personnel, doctors and nurses for emergency cases. In that case, I may cite uh, cases of uh, uh, fire corps uh, in local communities in Japan or in Switzerland where I lived. Many firefighters are volunteers who are doing other works usually. But when anything happens, they assemble and go for firefighting. So that kind of system may be also built in Japan. We, we train medical doctors, nurses, and other necessary uh, personnel to handle those cases, but they do other jobs usually. But to do so, you have to have a period of training and you have to give some uh, uh, economic incentives. So government has to come in. Uh, third of all, you have to have uh, vaccines and uh, medical uh, medicines to treat as quickly as possible. Well, uh, I heard that there's a one uh, institution established in Geneva by uh, uh, Bill Gates, but uh, we need to intensify those efforts and come up as quickly as possible with new vaccines. But here there's a trick. Medical companies usually go after the medicines that are used constantly, like my, for my heart disease or other things, because they, they can make money that way. For medicines that against the pandemic that can ha happen only once in 10 years, it doesn't make money for medical companies. So you need to give some incentives to the uh, medical pharmaceutical companies. But in the meantime, our challenge is once vaccine is developed, you have to provide to as many people as possible around the world. So how you make a balance between them is a big challenging question. The last of all, still I'm struggling with this idea. You know, to facilitate vaccine development, you may go preemptive, preemptive attack, defense rather than waiting for new pandemic to come out. That is to go, go around the world, for example, catch the bats, look for unknown viruses and start developing vaccines against them. That may help shorten the time in the future, but that's also a great risk involved if you inadvertently, carelessly release the viruses, you may uh, cause new pandemic, uh, unintended pandemic. So yeah, I'm still pondering about this option. That's my ideas. Thank you, yes. And I know the final one does have some controversy. There are strong opinions in both directions. 
on the value of such research and the dangers uh, that might potentially be with it. And many of your other ideas, these are, are very important things that uh, I know many people in, in our country and others are also thinking about rapid movement uh, in vaccine mm -hmm. development once we in have fact, genome sequences the, and things the, like this. The Institute in the Wuhan was doing that. They were going around the world, catching, getting new viruses, and they were studying. So uh, in a way, some have been already doing. Yep, certainly. And I, I believe some of that research uh, has, and similar efforts have been funded by the U.S. government as well. So uh, the, the value and, and risks of, of that type of research are definitely big topics for us all to consider. Um, thank you for all those wonderful ideas. Dr. Saito, did you have any additions on the international cooperation side? Yeah, I have similar ideas to Mr. Abe, but you know, the first of all, information sharing and networking is most important to share the epi epidemiological risk assessment and intervention strategies and best practices and in a timely manner. And also to maintain that uh, platform, we need uh, both formal and informal frameworks to facilitate the dialogue between the countries. So we have several, you know, WHO mechanism or the other bilateral or multilateral frameworks. It's very important to maintain the such um, the dialogue, uh, the dialogue and conversations in the from the peacetime. The second is the as the Mr. mentioned, the global sharing of goods like vaccines, but also for PPEs. So we have discussed a lot about how to share the new vaccines in a timely manner and equally to the all over the world, but we did not have big discussion on PPEs, but it was a bottleneck for this response. That was a, as a new challenge we recognized in this pandemic. And the third one is that we, I expect, expect a global leadership on the how to prevent stigma and how to avoid social divide. That is uh, not limited to one country, but it's a global issues. So well, this is one of the uh, very important uh, 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 issue uh, to be addressed at the international cooperation. Excellent ideas. Thank you very much. I have to add one more thing. Um, uh, so in order to promote the sort of international cooperation I mentioned, there are ways, what, how do you do it? That's the question, next question. One, people immediately think about the WHO. Uh, but here, I think we have to be very careful to have a, a sort of early warning system or to have a new vaccine developments some things better be done without any political consideration. Very often political consideration delays issuing early warning for the other political considerations or delays taking tough uh, anti-pandemic measures. So it is important that there should be some sort of a core experts group independent of uh, political entities. After all, WHO is a political entity. It consists of representatives of sovereign states and excludes one state country that is not, they call it, it's not a sovereign, even though what is starting with T later. So uh, it better be separate independent group to work on certain issues. But in the meantime, you need, if you need to straight spread advices rules across the world, you need, need such an entity as WHO. So we have to make use of both kinds of international institutions cleverly. I think that's very, uh, very important advice. Uh, and I know um, some of our other colleagues have been thinking about lessons from uh, on the chemical weapons experience, for example, and others where there are relatively independent scientific organizations and laboratory networks that contribute to uh, detection and, and attribution and things like that. So I think that's very important advice and one, one area where we can look at lessons from across different threat areas, perhaps. Thank you very much for both of you for those, those answers. 
Um, on a, a related question to all of this, um, I know you're both familiar also uh, with deliberate biological threats um, from some of your past experiences and uh, from the work that all of our countries do on all hazards preparedness that because pandemics and deliberate biological weapons threats can look so similar, uh, a lot of your preparedness and response can be common uh, between the two of them. Obviously, COVID uh, in this, this current coronavirus was not a deliberate biological weapon, to be very clear. Uh, we, we know that with quite certainty. Um, that said, many of us are, are concerned that the devastation from COVID-19 will make biological weapons potentially seem attractive um, to rogue actors in the future. And so I wonder if, the, if either of you have thought about that particular threat or if it's a, a conversation that's uh, occurring in Japan on the relationship to future biological weapons threats. Uh, and then again, how we can think about some of these common systems. So an early warning system, rapid vaccine development, some of these same tools that uh, should, we, should we make a greater public awareness that investing in them also would help us in preparing and hopefully deterring deliberate biological attacks as well. Um, Ambassador Abe, would you like to start? Yes, yes. I noticed uh, very little discussion uh, in this respect in Japan. People are not uh, so much concerned about uh, potential use as uh, biological weapons. Uh, but uh, I worked on the biological weapons issue as well. I think uh, any use of biological weapons or any pandemic, initially, you cannot distinguish them. So all the preparedness against the pandemic can also work uh, against any biological weapons attack or use. So I think that is an uh, important aspect. And, but uh, when you start talking about uh, preparedness, early warning and all those things as measures against uh, use of biological weapons, people immediately become politicized and go to any international conference, people debate uh, on the basis of political orientations. And that's not very productive. So you better use a pandemic healthy aspect as a good entry point. That way you can mobilize a greater number of people and they usually agree to cooperate. So I think that is important. And, uh, but uh, biological weapons uh, by nature is difficult to use because you may attack the enemy, but uh, you may also affect your own people, your own soldiers. And uh, you may, the theory goes that you vaccinate your soldiers beforehand and you use biological weapons. I'm not a medical scientist, but apparently there's no 100% effective vaccines. So eventually you may affect your own soldiers. So it's very difficult to weapons to use, but it's good weapon to use because it's difficult to attribute. Attribution question is uh, very key. And I think that's one reason why some people are using chemical weapons, trying to use biological weapons, because it's difficult to attribute and you may avoid uh, counterattacks. So that's a difficulty. Thank you. Yes, and uh, Dr. Saito? Yeah. Uh... One of the listen to the uh, you know the biological weapon community was that the coronavirus is not good for the biological weapons because once it happens, it's uncontrollable <laughs> for anyone. But uh, um, we have to consider the some uh, the uh, mechanisms of, for the debut of attribution um, for such events. As you know, the, there are some concerns on the. Uh, uh, research institute in Wuhan, but um, uh, it's, it's quite difficult to distinguish the uh, natural and deliberate uh, pandemic. But uh, the, we have to, uh, you know, debut how the uh, how such debut mechanism, international debut mechanisms can work in such um, suspected cases. And the, uh, what we can do for the biological event, uh, the natural deliberate biological event is mostly similar. As you know, the core uh, response capacity will be the same. 
So, and we, you know, um, so first of all, the early warning or early detection is a key mechanism. And it was, for that core capacity was developed under the IHR framework. And I think it was quite effective and we should highly appreciate the uh, efforts last 10 years. And the, also the, the efforts and the IHR that we uh, strengthen the core capacities on prevention, detection, and response uh, to such public health threats. That is uh, similar uh, core capacities, uh, the same core, core capacities needed for deliberate biological events. So that's, that kind of efforts should be maintained and we should more, work more on these efforts. Thank you. Thank you both. Excellent. Yes, Abe-san. Yes, uh, about this uh, biological weapons. I think it may go into the field of uh, uh, disinformation or mythology. But some people say one of the factor X may have been that uh, Oriental Asiatic people are more immune to COVID-19 than uh, Caucasians. That's the reason why Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, and also China uh, and Southeast Asian countries are doing better. Uh, well, that's unproven. Even Some people even say blood type also helps uh, AB or A or O type. Uh, so that they are unproven myths. But you may remember that uh, Obama nuclear posture review exempted the chemical weapons against which you may, US may reserve uh, nuclear retaliation. They made the explicit ex exception for future biological weapons developments. So we, we ne you never know. There may, you may, this may prove to be uh, ethnically different uh, impacts or blood type. Therefore, some country may be tempted to use it against the other country. So we, I think we, as a conclusion, I think we need to keep very careful watch on the developments of biological research. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, that's very important. And also a good reminder, yes, that uh, some of our country's postures, including currently, are very aggressive on potential response to biological weapons threats. Uh, I know some of our South Asian friends, uh, their countries have similar policies with regard to nuclear weapons use in retaliation to strategic attacks. So thank you for raising that um, very important point and how disinformation regarding biological threats might play into that picture. That's important. Um, thank you. And we're, we're getting close to an hour now. Um, so I wanted to just in conclusion throw open so if we can have hope for a moment uh, and imagine a few years from now that, that the world will have uh, gotten the COVID-19 pandemic under control and vaccines are widely available and that we will all be trying to contribute to preventing future pandemics from affecting us as badly as COVID-19 has struck the world. What are sort of one or uh, thinking about the future, uh, what, are, what do you think are just the, the single one or two most important lessons that we can already realize uh, are things that we need to attend to for the future. Uh, Ambassador Abe and then Dr. Saito. Uh, well, uh, that's a difficult question, but uh, the kind of uh, three or four measures I mentioned as a future international cooperation would be important. And uh, well, some people, political leaders still claim this is just another kind of cold well, that may be so. If you can have good vaccines, good medicines, and also devices to keep you from dying, you don't have to worry so much. And uh, uh, that may be good vaccines, some good medicines, and also the ECMO and uh, artificial lung uh, machines. And if you can have them and effective, you don't have to worry so much and you can go back to work. So uh, let, 
let's every country work on those things as quickly as possible. Thank you. Dr. Saito? So I think it's a very basic concept, but detect early and respond early is always uh, important for the preventing pandemic. And also I'd like to add how to build up openness, openness and transparency for the um, countries is also important, both for natural and deliberate biological threats. And that's the two, uh, my key message for the future outbreaks. Excellent, thank you. One more thing to add, uh, both in Japan and the United States, I understand the government having, have been having cutting back the budgets for the health programs. I understand the CDC budget has been reduced. In Japan, there are public health offices around the country. The government has been cutting back the budgets for them. So we realized we have a shortage of the personnel there. And that is very important. You have to spend money for the health. The facilities and the doctors and nurses have to be paid well and kept in a good condition, a good number. Uh, so in the United States, a uh, few of the biggest issues that uh, our public is very concerned about uh, and that are very important policy debates that are ongoing. Um, one is whether and how to reopen schools and do it safely. Another is how you prevent uh, huge mass casualty clusters from forming, especially at places like nursing homes. Uh, Japan, it sounds like, opened, uh, reopened schools relatively early uh, and has uh, a very aging population and many nursing homes and, and facilities uh, with older people congregating, uh, but has managed to, again, also control things well in that environment uh, to minimize casualties. Uh, can either of you share any lessons or ideas on these two subjects? Okay, let me go first. As you know, the school closure and school reopening is also our issues. And we closed the school very early in the, uh, in the end of February because the prime minister uh, declared that uh, the prime minister asked that all the schools should be closed in the late in the end of February, but there was no evidence about the, how the child, the risk of the ch in children and risk of uh, schools for, the, uh, for this epidemic. And we started to reopen the school at, from the end of May, and we have several, we see several clusters, but not a big one in the settings, but some you know, um, uh, dormitory, we have several large uh, crusts. We observed several large clusters. But, uh, you know, but we will continue the uh, schools even in a new, uh, even from uh, after the summer vacation. But, you know, Mm, we still need more evidence on the risk of, risk of children and the, um, the, how the children con contribute to this epidemic. You know, we, mm, but, you know, we have to emphasize the importance of the education and we try to uh, seek the best way to open the school uh, continuously. And as for the uh, nursing homes, we understand that is a quite huge risk for, the, uh, for, the, for those living in nursing homes and also for the uh, medical capacity in the area. Because once they were attacked, we, they will see a lot of severe cases and the uh, hospitals will be occupied very early so that's why we uh, intensively um, you know, uh, developed the mechanism to support such uh, nursing homes and all uh, the elderly care facilities. And some prefectures uh, established a response team for such 
clusters in uh, care facilities. And we also uh, employ the disaster response mechanism. We have a DMAT, Disaster Medical Assistance Team. They have a, a very good logistic support functions. So they will support uh, uh, logistics uh, for the uh, PPEs and other uh, materials uh, for responding to clusters in such care facilities. So, uh, but, but, you know, we'll, we're still working, uh, we're still uh, in, you know, working very hard for protecting such care, uh, nursing care facilities. Thank you. Abe-san, did you have anything to add? Yes. Uh, for some reason, uh, children are less affected by this uh, virus and they become sick less than uh, senior people. And so people tend to think that, okay, the children can go to school. But the problem is children go back home and uh, they may transmit the viruses to the senior, more vulnerable people. So they are sort of a, a mixing bowl venue for transmission. And that's a difficult part. And I think we still need to be very careful. For the uh, nursing homes, I think we may make use of an early warning system and you may get a sort of a nursing homes, a national association or somebody and a medical advisor may give, catch a early warning and tell them immediately to start uh, uh, taking precautionary measures. That may help uh, the nursing forms affected. I may add one more point, if I may. Pandemic or any communicable disease, do not care who or she is rich or poor. Even poor people can get infected and they can transmit that virus to the uh, rich, rich people. So. You have to take care of old people. It's very equal environment. And I was in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts last year. I was very impressed. The city uh, medical service provides vaccination to everybody. It doesn't matter one is homeless boy or not because they can transmit the vaccines, uh, viruses. So it's a very egalitarian question. I know when I, uh, when I worked for a while in Tokyo, I, I lived in Suginami and worked near the fish market. So I had the joy of experiencing the very crowded uh, commuter trains uh, across Tokyo every day and back home again in the evenings. Um, and how, how is that going in Japan? And, and are there ideas on why uh, commun uh, the communication of the disease has not been worse because of that? Uh, are people more spaced out on the trains or... Are there other factors that are involved? Yeah, we are really worried about the train, the transport in the last hours, as uh, Mr. Murakami mentioned. And the uh, train companies are working very hard for the how to, you know, uh, give a safety to our, uh, you know, users. And they open up the windows for the ventilation and the train company asked everyone to wear mask during the uh, during the uh, during the you know in the in the trains, and the difference between New Yorkers and Japanese people are the Japanese people does not talk <laughs> in the train, so that's a you know kind of you know, strength of our people here, but we are very sensitive and nervous. So everyone is wearing masks at this moment. That was, I think that's quite effective. Abe-san, any additions? Uh, <clears throat> I think uh, by encouraging people to work at home using internet communications, that helped to reduce the number of uh, passengers on the trains and subways. And also people are aware of this uh, and uh, some people are taking bicycles to commute uh, if they can. And uh, I even heard that there's an increase in bicycle thefts in Japan or otherwise. Uh, also, some people are driving instead of uh, taking trains. So there are a number of ways to reduce and also ventilation, distancing can help. 
Excellent, thank you. Uh, and I recall as well um, from my time in Tokyo, you would always see people sanitizing hand railings and things like that uh, in, this, in the train stations everywhere, uh, which is not as much of a common practice uh, in many of our countries. So maybe that's a contributor as well. Thank you both again for, for sharing all of your ideas and experiences uh, and insights from both the current pandemic uh, with COVID-19 and some of your past experiences as well. Um, for me, one of the most important lessons is, uh, again, it, part of what led to this conversation, I'm just reminded of the importance of comparing stories across different countries uh, in different communities around the world to better understand how we can all uh, address threats uh, better, detect them better, um, prevent them, hopefully, uh, and certainly respond as quickly as possible going forward. So um, I think this is a very valuable uh, conversation and I, I appreciate your time very much and I look forward to sharing these insights that you have uh, with our audiences and uh, as many people as we can get to listen around the world. So thank you again for your time. Thank you for listening to On The Verge. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. For more information on the work of the Council on Strategic Risks, please visit us at councilonstrategicrisk.org, or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn.